Remain standing for the gospel this morning. It comes to us from the third gospel, or Luke, chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time, the man had worn no clothes and did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He answered, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herds saw what happened, they ran off and told it to the people in the city and in the country. And people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. For they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that Jesus, that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Let's pray together. There's lots to hear and see in a service of worship, O God. And there are many voices in our own heads distracting us to one thought and then another. May the living word make its way through a sermon or a scripture or a song or a sacred moment that can help us as individuals and as a community of faith to be enlivened and liberated by the power of the gospel revealed finally and fully in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's not just Elijah who is um, running scared. 
it's not just in Elijah's time that Ahab and Jezebel are out to attack our lives. It's in every day and in every age. There's a lot to be afraid of in this world. And the question is, what scares you more? Because you can tell a lot by a person by what scares them. What scares you more? That you might make a mistake or, or that you might be caught in a mistake. Which of those scares you more? Which scares you more? That something might harm you or that something might challenge you? What scares you more? Uh, that the NSA is spying on us or that the NSA tells us that they need to spy on us in order to keep us safe. Which of those two scares you more? You can tell a lot about a person by what scares them more. The text is scary. It is uh, dark and ominous. There's this man who's filled with demons, we're told. He lives among the tombs. He can't be with the community. He's been exiled. He's been quarantined. He's been locked up, but the locks won't keep because his strength becomes almost superhuman and he breaks the bonds and he's seized and he's either running out into the wilderness or, in this moment, coming up to this man who has just stepped onto the shore to say, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Have you come here to torment me? He's scary. He's like some people we encounter on Bardstown Road on occasion. This guy is scary. And yet Jesus isn't afraid. One of the interesting things about the Gospels, all these people are afraid. Groups are afraid. People are afraid. Villages are afraid. The disciples are afraid. The women are afraid. Jesus is never afraid. He's filled with the Spirit of God. And because he sees the world, As God sees the world, he sees in this man not a monster, but a child of God. And he approaches him and asks him the question, what is your name? It's one of the things we do to humanize one another, to say a name. When I was in college, I was first introduced to the whole idea of world hunger. It was just an idea until... I volunteered to sponsor a child, and they sent me a picture, and the child had a name. It became not an issue. It became a person, a name. What's your name? In one of the saddest verses of the Scripture, the man answers, My name is Legion, which is to say he's lost his name. As the women's chorus sang, he feels like a motherless child. He has no identity. He has no place to call home. And he's taken on the name, the word, that describes the the empire, the legion, the army of soldiers, the the 6,000 who gather together to comprise a legion. He's taken on this name or he's given this name because Luke says many demons have entered him. And so he's all alone and exiled, except for these demons. He's all by himself. He is, we might think, the scapegoat for the the village, the identified patient, the one that everyone else projects their 
fears, their anxieties on. He is the symptom bearer of what the community is experiencing. And Luke says he's filled with demons. These demons, perhaps they were mental, forms of mental illness, or perhaps they were the fears and anxieties that are prevalent in every day and every time among every group of people that you and I experience as well as the person next to you of worrying about the world as it is or seeing the world in in such a way that we see it sort of distorted so that we have misplaced priorities and misplaced values and we worship lesser gods than the one true and real God and it makes us crazy. It makes us unable to cope and live with the rest of our society. We could park ourselves right here, stop at this point in the text, and invite ourselves to think about the ideas and impulses and imperatives that sort of possess us and seize us and make us feel completely and utterly helpless. What is that for you? This man is filled with demons. And yet when Jesus steps on the shore, he's unarmed, he's outnumbered by these demons, and yet he's not afraid. The demons are afraid. What have you to do with us? Have you come here to torment us? They ask with anxiety. They have the sense. They know that Jesus' peace trumps the confusion that they bring. That somehow his word somehow overwhelms the chorus of voices that are echoing through this man's mind. They know they've lost. They know they've lost. They know that God's dream of unity and harmony and dignity for this man can be cast out. And these demons of confusion and fear and hatred will lose. We sang it in the very beginning of this hour. Amid the world of despair and turmoil, one firm anchor holding fast. God eternal reigns forever, we sang. God the first and God the last. This is a bold claim. It's a radical claim. You might have thought when you came this morning that you were doing something that was sort of culturally acceptable. And yet, if we really look at this, Through the eyes of faith, our gathering here is radical. It is calling us to believe in a power and a mystery and a strength and a truth that is bigger than all of the demons that swirl around this culture that we live in. That if God's dream in the flesh can defeat the demons of this world then everything's different. If Jesus comes into this world to not only save us from hell when we die, but to transform this world even as we live in it, well, then everything is different. I recall vividly a lunch I had over 20 years ago with a friend when I was a younger pastor in Texas. I had black hair back then. You all have done this to me. <laughs> After we had ordered our drinks, we began to talk about the problems of the world, the 
world's a mess. We talked about one thing and then another. And at some point, my friend Landy said to me, you realize, of course, that you have the answer. I said, you better believe it, man. People need to start listening to me and follow me. And he said, I'm not kidding. You have the answer. He was serious. I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm a local church pastor. He said, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the book from which you preach every week. I'm talking about the power of Jesus to transform the forces of this world and to redeem it into something new and profound. I would love to convey to you this this morning what it felt like when that light bulb came on in my mind and I realized that he is exactly right. That we're here at Highland, not just to play church, but that this gospel is real and potent. It is the power of God unto salvation to change the world. I went to a funeral yesterday in Nashville, Tennessee, For a man I've been talking about for several weeks, his name is Will Campbell. He's this renegade preacher, originally a Baptist, who at some point said, I'm a preacher without a steeple. He worked for years in civil rights. He had the audacity to believe in the 1950s that the gospel of Jesus Christ could transform the world away from racism. It is a long and a slow trek, and we have not reached the promised land yet. But I believe that what Will Campbell saw is exactly true and right. And it has the power not just to change that issue or any other single issue, but everything that divides and defeats and contains and confronts us in our lives, in your life, whether you're a child here this morning, whether you're here as a new visitor or whether you've been here for many, many years. We're going to win. The demons knew it. So they proposed to Jesus, can you just put us in the pigs? Good Jewish boy, surely you'll at least do that for us, Jesus. Which he does, but it doesn't work. The pigs race into the lake and are drowned. And all that does is activate the pig farmers who are not concerned about the well-being of the man. They are concerned with their economy. Don't mess with the pigs. Here's a truth that we can write down about the gospel. The gospel will create economic hardship for those who benefit from the present arrangement. Frankly, that's you and me sometimes. We've been talking about the sad reality of the clothing garment industry where the, where the factory collapsed in Bangladesh for some weeks now. We've seen it not as just a news story, but we've talked about it in terms of men and women, young children who worked in that factory who've either lost their life or lost their parent or lost a limb, all because the garment industry was cutting corners to try to make more profit. The gospel is going to be economic hardship 
for those who benefit from the present arrangement. I've had to be honest with myself and say that includes me. When I went to hang up two shirts this week, I read on the label, made in Bangladesh. Now what do I do? Now where do we buy our clothes? Wendell Berry, that great Kentucky author, was at the rally this week for climate change. He said in the Courier-Journal, if we want to stop the impoverishment of the land and the people, we must be prepared to be poorer. Because the gospel will have an economic impact on how we live. That's what the pig farmers were mad about. So they ran and into the village and out come the village people and the village, not, not the music group, but um, <laughs> the people of the village. They come out and they see this man and he's clothed and in his right mind. I love that phrase. Paul wrote to the Galatians, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, clothe yourself in Christ. You're wrapped up in this new way. He's in his right mind. Those of you who Our friends of Bill and Bob know that phrase, clean and sober and in your right mind. The people from the village come out and see this beautiful scene. And Luke writes, and they were afraid. They were seized with great fear. It's the same word he used of the demon. They're seized. Something grabs them and holds them captive. And they say to Jesus, just just go. Just go. Why? Why would you send Jesus away? You send him away because you know that the sacred power of love to liberate the world, to restore human beings, to name them again, to give them value, it messes with the system. Jesus messes with our system, with the present arrangement. He refuses to let this man be the city's identified patient. He refuses to let him be the scapegoat, and they're scared. Because if he's not the scapegoat, who will be? How will we know that we're okay if he's not around to to put down and to point at? been hearing Will Campbell's stories this week as we mourn the death of this prophet in our midst. He was invited to speak to a group of Nashville pastors some years back. They were upset about the fact that they weren't getting what they considered the sufficient media attention that, that they thought they deserved. Will Campbell said to him, well, hell, do something important and the media will be there. You're busy with your big buildings and paving your parking lots. You're not involved with the real issues facing the city. So he suggested to him, here's something you can do. The legislature in Tennessee at that time was considering reinstituting chain gangs. You know what those are? We have people out from the prisons working on the highways. He suggested to them, why don't you insist on being chained with the chain gangs out on the public highways? Or why don't you demand that you be able to witness the next execution. That'll get you in the news, and it might make a difference. They thought he was crazy, and he was. He wasn't demon-possessed. 
He was God-possessed. He wanted them to practice what they preached. I find it interesting in this story that the only one besides Jesus who wasn't afraid was the man formerly known as Legion. He's clothed and in his right mind. He who was so confused, who felt isolated and out of control, hearing all of the disparate voices, has now found peace. And he's not afraid. And the good news is, if you're here this morning and feeling alone and confused and isolated, you don't have to be afraid either. For the same one who stepped onto the shores of the people of the Gerasenes will come among us and come alongside you and call your name and give you your life. I I can't fully explain it, but it changes everything. But that's not all. The healed man now wants to follow Jesus. He begs him, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, you stay here. And your life, your presence will be a witness to the people of Gerizah. Your life and the power of love over hate will be a witness. You'll be able to say, we don't have to live in the tombs anymore. We can live in houses, in community, together. You go. Bear the light in this world. In World War II, the the Nazi paratroopers invaded the little island of Crete off of Italy. The people of the island tried to resist. All they had were kitchen knives and and, uh, haysides. And so when they were finally overcome, the Nazis got their revenge by lining up whole villages and mowing them down with machine guns. The few survivors vowed, we will never forget. We will hate as long as we live. And we will pass on this hatred to the next generation. All except for a man named Alexander Papadaris. He was a young boy during that horrible, horrible time. And he became an advocate for peace. An advocate for healing. When he spoke, he carried in his wallet a a, a little pouch, and in the pouch was a little mirror, a little mirror about the size of a quarter. He explains to the group, we didn't have toys. It was such a desperate time. One day, walking along, I found this piece of a mirror. It came off of a German motorcycle that apparently wrecked here. I couldn't find all the pieces, but I found this one, and I took a stone, and I smoothed its edges to make it round, and it became my toy. I became fascinated with using that mirror to try to angle it just right to reflect the light into the darkest crevices that I could find. After the war and after I got older, I kept this little mirror, and I every once in a while would pull it out and Try to find that deep hole, that place in the closet that is so dark and the light can't possibly shine. And I would find a way to shine the light in those places. Until one day I realized 
This isn't a child's game. This is a metaphor. It says to you and me, I'm not the light. I'm not even the source of the light. But the light, the truth, the understanding, the knowledge is there, but it will only shine in the dark places if I reflect it in there. That I'm but a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and whose shape, I don't know. But I've got this piece, I've got this part, and I can reflect the light into the dark, into the black places in the human heart, and the light can shine in the darkness. So Jesus said to the man, go back to your village and declare all that God has done for you. Reveal to the world the system of construction rather than destruction. The system of lifting people up instead of dashing them down. And proclaim in the city what Jesus has done for you. And so this day, you and I take this old, old story and we make it new when we ask, where can Christ set me free? And do I believe? Will I stake my life on the power of this Christ and his love to set me free, to set us free as a people, and to send us forth to bear the light? Let's pray together. Light of the world. Shine on us and allow us to feel the warmth and growth, the healing and hope that only you can provide. You alone are the real joy giver. And so this day, as we gather to worship, may we receive it and may we reflect it in all that we are and do. Through the power and love of Jesus, we pray. Amen.